Welcome back to the Behind the Play podcast. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm joined by, by someone who knows the NBA inside and out, Brian Windhorst of ESPN and the host of the Hoop Collective podcast. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time and doing this. I know how busy you are, uh, so I really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Uh, this is actually the best time of year for me. Um, football's going on in the U.S., and uh, people forget about uh, the basketball for a few weeks at least. And then in two, three weeks, everyone's right back to, to basketball. I want to ask you a little bit about you were, I was in Jakarta uh, covering Canada, but you were covering the Americans at the FIBA World Cup. Um, I know you love international basketball, but uh, how kind of scared of you are of you are you of, of Canada going into the Lille slash Paris Olympics? Uh, that must have been a, a fun tournament as well to, to cover the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, it was a, actually the U.S. and the Canadians played a great game. It wasn't a great game from the perspective of like uh, the type of basketball I think either team wanted to play. Um, I hope that's the beginning of many great clashes between the two of them. I would love to see them play again in the Olympics with a medal on the line. Hopefully it would be gold instead of the bronze as it was this time. And, you know, um, you know, I have a good relationship with Nick nurse, Mm -hmm. So I was very attuned to the Canadian, you know, the fight over the last uh, four years or so for the Canadians to get to that moment. Um, uh, you know, I was aware of the, the disappointment in uh, China in 2019. The Canadians didn't advance to the medal round there. And then, um, you know, not qualifying for the Olympics, despite having home court advantage. Um, I believe it was in Victoria yep. for the, um, the qualifying tournament. And so for, um, and also, I've known Jordy Fernandez for 15 years, who okay. took over as the Canadian coach. So, um, you know, I was uh, I was really happy to see them uh, play so well. I'm a big believer in Shea Gildas Alexander. I've I had him on my and he made first team All NBA, so it's not like it's a <laughs> you know. But I, I had him on my first team All NBA ballot this year. I'm a believer in him. So to see him, you know, do that, it was uh, it was it was it was it was just tremendous theater. It was a great game. Unfortunately, it was on it. 4 a.m. Eastern, no. <laughs> 1 a.m. Uh, Pacific. So um, I don't. I really don't think many people saw the game in North America. So what I hope is, is that that's the beginning of um, of great clashes to come. Is USA Basketball telling you not to to tell any of the players that they're in Lille for the first group stage? Is that is that something that you've been? I'm I'm not sure that uh, that it's well known. I'm not sure sure USA Basketball is trying to hide it. Um, it's a um it's a crazy um it's a crazy situation for such a marquee event in the olympics of basketball they're not playing in paris and um at least for the for the first 10 days so um i all these people are saying to me like um oh i'll bet you can't wait to spend next summer in paris first off the concept that i'll be spending the whole summer there that's one final funny thing and by the way, like um, there are worse things in life than to spend 10 days in, in North France. Yeah. Um, I'm not uh, saying I'm going to a salt mine, but um, it isn't going to be Paris for most of it. Uh, in fact, the time in Paris will probably be all work because the off days, all sort right. of the, the easy days will be, um, uh, you know, in, um, in way outside of Paris. And, you know, this year in, in Manila, um, the sort of the easy days of that event 
which are, you know, their pool play days, there's days off in there. It was straight monsoon for 10 consecutive days in, yeah. in Manila. Um, like three or four times a day it would downpour, you know, <laughs> unrestrained for for 45 minutes to an hour. And you, the streets would flood and you couldn't go anywhere. And so, um, so <clears throat> yeah, uh, the, a lot of times these assignments, they seem more romantic in the concept than they are um, than they are in actuality. Yeah, I know for sure. I know in, in Jakarta it was the opposite. It was just dry heat, smoldering heat for for two weeks. So it was definitely different. So I think I got the lucky one compared to Manila. But Brian, I want to ask a little bit about your career. Obviously, you you, you know you started very young. You were at the Plain Dealer. I think you're 25. Uh, covering LeBron just tell us a little bit I know you met LeBron at 14 just tell us about a bit about your career journey and maybe what made you want to be a, a basketball journalist yeah I started um, working at daily newspapers when I was 16 um, basically working um, as a as a clerk um, dealing with box scores and things um, you know on nights when I was in high school you know three four nights a week I would work until 10 30 or 11 o'clock at night and then I did all the way through college because um, I went to school not far from where I was uh, where I was from. I would commute in there. And so by the time I was 22 years old, I already had um, quite a bit of experience working at a daily newspaper uh, in, the, at the, in Akron, Ohio, which was, you know, a mid, you know, a mid-sized city. So, yeah, I mean, I had a great opportunity to uh, start my career early and that enabled me to get in position to be an NBA beat writer early. Um, I always, you know, wanted to cover professional sports because if you can't play professional sports, that's your way to connect to it. And so I was just extraordinarily fortunate that LeBron was from Akron from my high school. So I got to know him early. You know, there was a time, but it's hard to believe there was a time where um, there wasn't enough coverage of LeBron um, mm. when his, you know, f- first few years in high school, you know, um, I had to sort of argue that we should cover more. And my bosses were thought I was playing favorites with my <laughs> high school, which I can understand why they felt that um, I was, you know, 19 or 20. I wasn't a seasoned guy. So but um, so it was very lucky for me. And then, and then doubly lucky that uh, when I was in position to go on to an NBA team, that he was um, was. Uh, I drafted to that team, you know, it, it could have very easily, they could end up with the second pick and drafted Darko and I might've gotten the job, but I might've burned out on it and not gone anywhere. So, and then I was very fortunate that when LeBron went to Miami, that ESPN wanted to cover LeBron and was at a point in ESPN's history where they really wanted to expand how they covered teams. So I was lucky for that. And I was lucky that they didn't have anybody in, in Miami, you know, um, at the time, yes, there was an ESPN Chicago operation, an ESPN New York operation. Had he gone to either of those, I don't think they would have hired me. But um, had I been two years earlier, I don't know if they would have been they would have been in the mood to hire somebody just to cover the Miami Heat, which is what I did. So I got a lot of fortunate um, pieces of fortune along the way uh, with LeBron. You know, it's it's often said that you know LeBron is the ocean that rises and lifts all the boats. And there's a lot of boats on that ocean. Some of them are coaches, some of them are players, some of them are organizations, some of them are charities, but I'm one of the boats. I might be more of a dinghy than an ocean liner, but I'm I'm one of the boats that he absolutely lifted. And so I was very fortunate to have that happen. 
And maybe just describe a little bit your your relationship with LeBron. Like I know you don't cover him as much as you used to. Obviously, I know he you did, he didn't really like that you went to Miami. I heard about that, but just describe that relationship over the past almost twenty years. Yeah, I don't think it was personal. I don't think it was, I don't think he had an issue with me personally going to Miami. I think it was more that ESPN was on top of the Heat and yeah. everything that they did was heavily covered and for the first few months most of it was negative you know his his decision to relocate there and then the start to that season that first uh five six weeks i think that got him in a bad mood and it wouldn't have mattered who was uh, showing up with that uh you know name around their neck um but yeah i mean i got to know him when he was 14 15 um so by the time he was 18 and was a worldwide name i just had more um background there you know i knew his family i knew his surrogate father eddie jackson i knew his mother gloria i knew his friends i knew maverick carter i knew rich paul i knew randy mims like before they called themselves the four horsemen i knew them i knew maverick when he was a wide receiver um i was actually i actually have always said i've said this to him that um i think he's a he was a better wide receiver than he was a basketball player he was a great wide receiver he could have, he played college basketball. He could have played college football, but, um, you know, I was there when LeBron, um, uh, decided that he was going to play high school football after he decided he was going to, he decided I'm going to sit. And then he changed his mind after week one and said, I'm going to go play. And I remember talking to him coming after his first practice. Um, you know, and then when he went into the NBA, you know, um, the day that Bronny was born, um, right. I remember talking to him. He he had to leave the team. It was during um, training camp. In fact, uh, Bronny's birthday is coming up here because it's during training camp every year. It's in early October. Um, and he wasn't married at the time. That was still somewhat of a stigma, at least when it was public. Yeah. Um, and so he had to explain why he was leaving training camp because he couldn't just not show up for three days. Um, and so... Um, I did the interview with him. You know, I was there for that when he was explaining that his father wasn't around. And so he was going to be important for him to be a present father, et cetera. You know, and even when he became a really big star um, and he went to Miami, uh, it was the first time he was living away from Northeast Ohio. It was also the first time I was living away from Northeast Ohio. And so um, I like to say that, you know, we weren't living in the same life. I mean, I wasn't I didn't have a 10 bedroom house. I had a two bedroom apartment. Um, I uh, had a Jeep. He had a Bentley. You know what I'm saying? It's not, we were, we were not on the same track, but we could see each other from the two tracks and you know, his rookie year in the NBA um, going through the trials and tribulations of learning that life and the travel and the challenges and all that stuff. I was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I think there was some shared experience. And I think that, yeah, having the background with him and having that shared experience. The other thing is, you know, over the course of covering him every day for a decade plus, you're there for the worst times. You're there for the best times. You're there when he's had injuries. You know, I've I've stood next to him when he's been in tears at the end of the season. I've stood next to him when he celebrated championships at the end of the season. You know, I was there at his lowest moments of his high school career, which he did have a few. Um, I was there for the highest moments of his high school career, which he had many. Um, so um, all of these things are uh, 
contribute to the mosaic of the relationship. Um, since he's gone to the Lakers, uh, a couple of things. One, we have a yeah. Los Angeles-based reporter on the team, Dave McMenamin, who knew him from Cleveland. Um, and just frankly, I'm not as interested in his Laker tenure. Hmm. Um, you that? know, his, his, I'm just not. I'm just not. I, I was way more interested in in the Miami Heat thing. I was way more interested in obviously coming back to Cleveland and the the tip of the top being the um, the uh, uh, the championship in 2016. And you know, since he's gone to the Lakers, like uh, obviously the Lakers are one of the biggest stories in sports. I talk about them. I attend Laker games. I was there when he broke the record, the scoring mm-hmm. record last year, which was actually a terrific moment. One of my favorite memories I've had with okay. LeBron and to be there with his sons, especially was, was really, was, 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 was a cool moment. But I mean, like, I don't, it doesn't matter to me what he does. I'm just not as, as, uh, as emotionally invested in the Laker years. Um, so that's just, you know, so just over the last few years, I mean, in addition to the fact that I've been focused on other things, um, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles and it's not that I'm not there, but um, I'm just not as um, just having, you know, I, the, I didn't go into the bubble. I had the chance, but I decided to, not to go into the bubble. So I wasn't there when he won that title. It's the only time I've not been there for, you know, one of his finals, you know, yeah. so just all of it's been a little bit as close as I was in those first 15 years, the last five, I just haven't quite been as present. And with players like LeBron and you, you've talked about <clears throat> developing relationships with his family, Maverick Carter, Rich Paul, and just like, how do you approach not just LeBron, but like throughout your career, managing those relationships with players? I know you've said that a lot of your job is talking to executives and agents. How do you do that? But then also kind of stay to like adhere to like the journalistic standard and and kind of write and cover them honestly as well. I I don't really go into things um, looking for favoritism. Mm. I mean, certainly I've benefited from favoritism at times. Um, And I certainly think building relationships is important. I mean, one of the reasons why I just spent 28 days on the road with Team USA um, in the summer, in the quote unquote off season, Mm -hmm. uh, was to build relationships with those players um for going down the line you know um i went to china for three weeks in 2019 um and built relationships with those players and so like got to know jason tatum and jalen brown and marcus smart um and donovan mitchell um and as i've covered the celtics deep into the playoffs last few years uh Derek white also was on that team you know like that time that i put in with um with those guys then mattered. Um, and so I want to say like, I don't care about the, that relationship at all. Obviously if you have a relationship with somebody it matters, but I'm not approaching relationship looking for something, you know, a give back on the other end. I pretty much approach everything straight on. Hmm. Um, now in journalism, you certainly um, have a give and take. Um, you know, one of the things that I am, you know, people say that life is short. I disagree. I think life is very long. <clears throat> and so you weigh certain things um, within relationships like you. There may be something that doesn't work out, like either you don't report something or you can't get a certain interview or a certain story today. 
it doesn't mean that that's it forever. Like, you know, there'll be <laughs> another, you know, I always say, you know, there's been a million NBA stories. I've been in this era for 21 years now. I've done some of them. And when I'm gone, there'll be a million more. And, yeah. you know, so I'm not like hyper-focused on individual things. So, but that's not to say that I won't, all right, I'll let that one go. Or, oh, I didn't get this interview. Well, maybe I'll get another one or maybe I won't, whatever. There's 450 players in the league. There's 30 teams, you know, there's a hundred agents, whatever. Um, but uh, generally speaking, um, I play things pretty straight. I'm not interested in, um, uh, you know, storing up favoritism or whatever. Um, and that's just always how I've always approached it. And that's how I'll continue to approach it. And does that cost me certain quote unquote gets? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe it does, but I have generally a totally clean feeling about doing my job. I don't, um, I don't ever have to not hold my head high. So that's the way I operate. Some people like it, some people don't. And it's the way I've done it for two decades when it comes to the NBA. And I'm not going to be changing anytime soon. And you talked about just kind of not just pouncing on stories necessarily. I know you said that you maybe report maybe 1% of trade rumors or something like that. How do you make that decision to, to, to kind of to report something? I know you also said you don't like to make assumptions, like talking about like LeBron going to, back to Cleveland, the quiet trade, like how do you kind of sift through all this information and decide what to report and maybe the rabbit holes to go down or not to go down? Uh, this, this, it, this sounds nebulous. It sounds like it's morphous, but you either, you either know what you're talking about or you don't. Mm. You're either trustworthy with what you say or you're not. Now that doesn't mean that you can't analyze the situation and be incorrect. It doesn't mean that you can't have information that changes, but, um, you know, when it's conversations about transactions happen nonstop. Mm -hmm. It isn't just like, Oh, there's a Dame Lillard trade, um, negotiation right now. What is the latest with that? I have conversations all day, every day, 365. Okay. Maybe not actually 365, but 320 something about NBA business. And so sometimes these lead to absolutely direct actionable information that you will go on and say, this is what's happening. More often it is you get a feel for the way teams are feeling the way players are feeling in their comfort level with teams. You, you look six, eight, nine, 12 months out and try to think about those kinds of things. So like sometimes when you hear about discussions, you know that that's going to be something that's important later on. And you, it's not something that you can understand in the first five minutes of doing the job. You come to understand it over the course of time. So it's not as linear as team A talked with team B about a player and you want to go run and put it on Twitter that they talked because it can evolve into a hundred different things. And so again, if someone jumps in front of you and like has a tweet or something 
there's literally going to be 75 more rumors before the end of the day or before the end of the week. Yeah. I would rather focus on having a good feel for what's happening in the league um, and being able to articulate that in a way than being able to chart individual rumors. And I know that's not what necessarily all fans want to hear because the fans love that raw meat. You can get that elsewhere. It's just not the thing though. I think is the best way to do the job. With that, I know you don't like to be aggregated and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the, the kind of the, why would they do that meme that kind of went off last year, but I know you were trying to avoid being aggregated. Maybe just talk about, how you said that that's really changed the way you cover the NBA because of aggregation. Just talk a little bit about that. Well, I think aggregation is difficult because it strips context. So, um, you know, uh, if you're in the middle of a conversation um, and you're referencing something and you're comparing something, um, if that context is stripped out of it and you just look at the raw words, it can take on a completely different meaning. Um, and uh, the thing about it is, is that um, yes, when you're in a podcast setting, you're on TV, sometimes you reveal, you reveal things uh, that you know, but you know, they're not framed with a headline on it, you know? And so the, the issue that has happened in the world is that um, when somebody sees an aggregation, it does have a headline on it. And they're used to seeing something with a headline on it and, and just equating it to equal, like a story that is in the ESPN news stack with my name, with the headline and my carefully crafted writing on it is the same as somebody taking what I said out of context. It looks the same to them. And so it's, it's evaluated as if they're, they're on a level playing field. And for the consumer, I, I, I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what's frustrating about it, and it's it, the reason I think I think it's changed um, my the way I do my job is that I I now try I, I sometimes fail, but I now try to be very cautious about what I do. I will give you an example of that just happened okay. um, when I was um, when I was over covering Team USA. Anthony Edwards, it was my question. I asked Anthony Edwards a question about um, uh, uh, they were th- the team USA. Steve Kerr was thinking about bringing him off the bench mm-hmm. um, at the start of the summer, and I think in the first scrimmage or two, he was with the second unit, and he was on the record in front of multiple microphones. I asked the question, and he said, "Yeah, you know, Steve Kerr came to me, and uh, he's like, you know." Uh, when Kobe was on the team, Dwayne Wade came on, came off the bench. So, um, you know, maybe you could do something like that. And he, and he was like, well, I, I, I didn't look around. I didn't see Kobe on the team, you know, so I wasn't really cool with coming off the bench, but, um, you know, I was willing to try it, you know? And the thing is, is that if you'd been around that team, first off, the team was doing very well at that point. Anthony Edwards was doing great. The, the the role definition and the camaraderie and everything there was spectacular. And he was talking about his mindset when he first heard it. And it wasn't that he wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just said, he was like, I really wasn't cool with it, but I said I would try it. Well, obviously those quotes and some people did take them. If, 
if you just took the quote, uh, yeah, Kerr came to me about coming off the bench. I didn't see a Kobe and I wasn't cool with it. If you just took that, kapoom, yeah. right on the headline. <laughs> like it would have been easy, easy layup, uh, a million clicks on ESPN. I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I, and I, and, and then when it came out, I even told our, uh, my, my uh, desk, I was like, listen, I was there. I elected not to do it and I'm not going to do it now. If you want to take someone else's report and put it on there for your own, you can but I'm not going to do it because if I had taken that quote, number one, it would have been out of context. And number two, it would not have accurately portrayed the real situation. Hmm. And so 10 years ago, I might've taken it hmm. not because I was trying to screw Steve Kerr or screw Anthony Edwards, but like, you know, you're the, you're the reporter. That's a great quote. Splash that up there. And having gotten the other end of that aggregation, that and by the way, it wasn't like that was a red letter example. That's just one that just happened yeah. recently that I can remember. You know, uh, many other times that I can't remember. That is a classic example of how I've changed my job, how I've changed the op- uh, my job. And I firmly believe, and I will go down with the fact <laughs> that I that I thought Anthony Edwards was being totally cool about it, and that that portrayal of him not being cool was inaccurate. Um, and I will, and I will. I am fine with not having my name on that story. And if that was a mistake, I'll accept that mistake. But I will now err on that side of doing things. And when I talk about MBA business, I attempt to protect myself in talking about transactions or talking about moves that keeps out of a direct saying something's going to happen because that's how you get a headline that says report colon. Yeah. Winhurst says jazz to trade go bear. Um, and that is um, the reason it's funny that it went viral is that it was a product of me trying not to go yeah. viral, mm-hmm. trying not to say, yeah, they're about to trade Rudy Gobert. And quite frankly, I think they're about to trade Donovan Mitchell too, which is what I was saying. And so that's that's just the reality of the modern NBA. And two things I see happening all the time. One, erosion of player <coughs> and team trust with the media mm. because of media chasing something that causes a problem that erosion has been steady for the last decade and two negative side effects of the erosion between mm-hmm. the media connection to, to nba players and teams mm-hmm. um not as not as many good stories being told the the, wow. the 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 teams not getting as much out fewer feature stories with true depth on players that can help fans feel more well-rounded um, stuff like that. So um, it, they're, they're, they're related and they're both negative. Yeah. Um, and, but uh, I can see why many times I see why there's a frustration with trust with the media. And many times I see the lack of focusing on players being able to have the media tell their stories. Either they try to tell it themselves which sometimes works, but most of the time doesn't. 
uh, or it doesn't get told at all. Yeah. I want to ask a little bit about just being, I, I, I heard the story that you got a bit of inspiration. I know you've developed this relationship with Victor Wembanyama, but you drew inspiration from the NHL lottery and, and Connor McDavid, which I thought was really interesting because you're in Toronto at the time of the, the draft lottery, uh, the Oilers got picked. And then there was a quick interview immediately for Connor McDavid's reaction with Elliot Friedman. And that's kind of what you did with, with Victor. Um, why do you think that reaction, that interview that kind of went, um, I wouldn't say viral, but was very compelling. Like, why do you think those kind of live reaction um, kind of interviews are so compelling? And what was it like for you to be in France at three in the morning doing an interview during the draft lottery? Yeah. So my interview with Victor wasn't great, but then again, Elliot's interview, Elliot's one of the best journalists in North America, wasn't great with Connor McDavid either. But, you know, early in the playoffs, um, I don't remember why I was in Toronto, what playoff series I was covering. Um, maybe Raptors, Wizards, something maybe. like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, in the early rounds uh, of the playoffs, you know, some of the games are on like TSN 2, TSN 3, and the hotel cable systems don't have it in Toronto. So, um, the, 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 the move is to go to real sports. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's other places to go, but real sports, you know, is, uh, probably, you know, I think there's just some, you know, some copy cats, you know, but if you can find a better sports bar in the world than real sports, congratulations, you know? So, uh, also the folks at real sports are usually amenable. So I went into real sports trying to see NBA playoff games and ran into lottery night. And uh, I'm not a hockey fan. I don't really know anything about hockey. Um, I could not name you more than five NHL players. I could maybe name you a couple of NHL coaches. One of them was Mike Bob Babcock, yeah. who is not even an NHL coach anymore. But nope. if you'd asked me a week ago, I'd have been able to say his name. Um, so um, I ran into the lottery. And so I watched it with, you know, I don't know, five, 800 people there in real sports. And I, first off, I loved it because it was so much more fast paced. And um, I don't know the gentleman's name. I think he's assistant, assistant commissioner. He, his presentation is so, is just way better than uh, Mark Tatum. It's no offense to Mark, but, uh, but it happened like six minutes, none of this eight commercials, whatever. And it was on ESPN. I mean, I'm criticizing our own presentation and um, uh, I loved it. And then it was like, Okay, uh, Connor McDavid is an Edmonton Oiler, and like I remember, they showed a camera of him walking down the hall from the green room. Like it wasn't even that he just appeared on set. Yeah. Like they showed, like um, also um, I don't remember where the lottery was, but they had somebody from the Oilers who gave an interview, like right there. It was like, okay, you just won the Connor McDavid lottery. Oh, you know, it's gonna be great. You know, hey, whatever. His interview's done in like ninety seconds. Bam, right to. Interview uh, with Elliot and Connor McDavid sitting on set, and you know Connor sort of fumbled his way through it, but I remember being like, "Holy Moses!" Like he just found out ninety seconds ago, maybe it was two minutes, that he's going to spend basically the foreseeable future of his life in Edmonton. Um, when obviously he wanted to go, I'm sure he wanted to go to Toronto, right? He was from mm -hmm. the Toronto area, Toronto. the GTA. So, um, and uh, I always remember that. I thought it was awesome. And so when that opportunity looked like it was possible, uh, I was like, you got to do that. 
Um, and, you know, the circumstances were challenging. You know, I was, you know, in that case, Connor was in a studio. <laughs> the primary focus of him was to do this interview on studio. In the case of Victor, he was at a party um, with, it wasn't that many people actually. It was, it was tough to get in there. Like they, like we had asked for a certain number of people to come and they're like, no, you can bring three. Uh, so it was like, it was me, a cameraman and uh, a producer basically. And um, long story short, the, the circumstances were difficult because they were watching the lottery mm -hmm. in real time. And it wasn't like he was in a green room or I was in a room down the hall. I was literally 12 feet from him. Yeah. So, and yeah, he played a game that night. You know, the, the French season goes longer than the NBA season. So he played the last regular season game that night, mm. which they won against their rival from Paris. It was a close game. And then they all came to this party. And it, I think it's, I think the lottery started at 2 AM, but like, it was like two 30 by the time the interview happened. And like, we're dealing with the Western conference finals game two or whatever. So like I'm my ear, I'm dealing with the truck in I don't know. I was in Denver. I think the game was in Denver. Yeah. I'm like, okay, you've got, you have got 75 seconds to do this interview. And I was not sure how long it was going to take for Victor to get over to me. I mean, we'd said it all in advance, but like he's having yeah. a moment. Right. And, and like, I feel like during the NHL lottery, there wasn't as, there wasn't a game to get to. Maybe there was, but no, I don't remember uh, there being. Tend to not be, but yeah. So I like we are like <laughs> it is a Western Conference Finals game, which while the interview would have been nice, we could have gotten the interview not live on air and it been, you know, a better interview, frankly. But the 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 rawness of doing that interview. I mean, this is a one in a career type situation. So that was why I did it. You know, I I the travel was challenging. I broke off from covering the philadelphia boston series and i missed game seven to fly over there to do wow. it um i know that some people thought i only flew over there to do the interview and then immediately got on a plane going back that wasn't the case um i facilitated uh an interview that victor recorded the day before with robin roberts for good morning america i picked the location that, that we were doing the interview at based on where I had seen having been to France earlier in the season, I consulted with Robin and her producers uh, on the questions provided like a whole dossier of information, yeah. sat there with Victor before the interview, went over some stuff, facilitated where we would go after the interview. Then the day of the game had lunch with the opposing head coach Okay. To get them know who's an, who was an American. I mean, he still is an American, but he's no longer the coach there. He's now back coaching in the NBA, Will Weaver. Um, then was at the arena very early and taking notes and covering that game because once the night was over, which was at about three in the morning, I went back to my hotel room and I wrote a story about the night, about everything that happened with Victor, you know, the whole experience of that game. And then because it's a one-off situation. And, you know, this party at, you know, this Nike building. Bobby on the was there, right? Was Mbappe, What's that? The, the soccer player? Yeah, yeah. Mbappe. <laughs> it was some famous French actor who's like one of the best known French male actors right now. And I don't remember his name. 
I met him. He's apparently in some Marvel movie. I met him. Mbappe was there and Michael Rubin was there. Those are like the people in the room with Wembenyama. Um, so yeah, that was all, you know, but in my job, you sometimes get into situations kind of like that. That wasn't unusual. What was crazy was this happening at two in the morning on a game night and just what happened in this game. So I literally wrote that story until about 6 a.m. Uh, Paris time. Um, and then I went to sleep for like three or four hours. And then I got up to do the morning shows for ESPN. I did Sports Center and Get Up, which was actually on at um, 1 p.m. Get Up. Uh, you know, Greenberg is going, good morning. I'm like, it's afternoon. I've got four hours sleep. Um, and uh, did all that stuff. And, you know, got done with about three in the afternoon. And I, because of that, uh, um, I couldn't fly home that day. So I had to go home the next morning. So, yes, I was done after two and a half days at 3 p.m. People were like, oh, did you enjoy Paris? Did you like, <laughs> did you go see the, the Eiffel Tower? Did you take a ride down the, the Seine? Did you eat? cheese and bread under the stars i was like no at three o'clock i collapsed because i was working nonstop. um and then i got up the next morning and flew to new york then i did get up again and then flew to boston after doing get up for game one of the um eastern conference finals with the heat um i think i flew i think that started in boston yeah so it started in boston so like you know, it was hard. It was, it was a hard, and I was happy to do it. Um, but I did it. I did all that because I knew how special tremendous of a one-off experience it would be. Uh, before I let you go, I just want to do some quick hitters around the NBA because you are an insider. And, and first thing, I want to start with the Raptors. Just, I know you like to say you like to see a plan. I don't really feel there's been a plan with the Raptors for a while. Um, I, I know you mentioned they have the least amount of transactions uh, in the NBA the past three years. How do you evaluate this team going forward and, and maybe the Siakam kind of next contract? Because it sounds as though he doesn't want to be traded so that he can get a, a super max. Yeah, so the Siakam situation is complicated um, and it would be complicated for any team in the league because the challenges. um he's not a clear cut supermax player and he's also not eligible to supermax right now. Um, so even if he has a year where he makes all NBA, like say, let's say he has another great season and makes 13 all NBA. I'm not so sure you're giving him 300 million. You may be willing to give him 200 something, but um, so that's difficult for any team to handle. That would be problematic. The issue though for Toronto is that they've lost a couple of, star players for next to nothing in return. I mean, no offense to Precious Achua, but the return for Kyle Lowry was negligible and the return for Fred Van Vliet was zero. Uh, the return for Kawhi Leonard was zero. So that's three players. I know Kawhi has been a few years now, but that's three players who have walked away from your organization that you weren't able to extend or more manage. Again, I don't have a problem with the way they handled Kawhi, but they still lost him for zero. And so an organization just can't have that. And so now you're looking at Siakam. So it, it's it's challenging enough to deal with Siakam, but now you're dealing with Siakam with the scar tissue of having 
kind of botched the last three guys who were going to be free agents. You weren't able to keep them. And you could even argue that letting Kyle Lowry walk was smart, um, but they're a worse team since he left. So uh, that's that's the thing. And, and I don't see how they're going to have a positive outcome with OG Ananobi uh, either. So they've put themselves in a situation where their past decisions and really their past indecision has led them to a tough spot because they having indecision on Siakam and OG Ananobi isn't unreasonable. There's a reason why you would have indecision there, but because of these other deals that's weighing on them. And if those two guys both leave for nothing, it's a devastating situation. Um, if you are forced to trade them for pennies on the dollar, it's potentially a devastating situation. So <clears throat> I'm sure that they've looked at this, um, but uh, the Raptors are, they've underachieved the last few years and <clears throat> they've just lost a guy who has a, a good reputation as a coach. Maybe Darko will end up being a great coach. You know, I've known Darko for four or five years. I hope he does well. I, um, I have a great respect for the European game. Um, so like I advocate for Europeans to get a chance. Um, there's a couple of coaches in Europe right now that I would say they should be NBA mm. head coach candidates because I've seen them work and I think that they would be really great coaches. So I want Darko to work out, <clears throat> but they've put him in a very difficult spot. Um, so they're a, they're a frustrating team to try to figure out because they haven't been able to figure out their own stuff. And I say this with immense respect for Masai and Bobby Webster. Like I, they built a champion from scratch. I mean, that's an impressive thing to do, but um, I don't think that the Raptors over the last couple of years have been run in the, in the most, in the, in the most, um, most productive way possible. And um, I can say that, and not think that they can't, that they, uh, and not assume that they can't turn it around or not, or take anything away from what they've done in the past. But I can say that, that they have not, um, they have not managed it well. And, you know, they did hit on Scotty Barnes. Yeah. And so like, um, I can, I can also recognize that, but I just don't think that the management has been at the highest level, which, you know, they operated at before. I want to go to Dame quickly. Just how likely is there a resolution with with kind of his trade demand by maybe the start of the season? And, and do you, is there any chance he'd hold out and maybe do something a la Bill, uh, Ben Simmons? Um, well, the, the Blazers are trying, you know, for weeks. Um, I don't think there's any movement. And I do think in this last seven, day, 10 days, there's been movement on the Blazers front. There's attempts to 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 do to, to make something happen only they know what they're holding in their hands in terms of real offers i mean that's one of the things that you learn covering the nba the word offer is a very 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 complicated word very complicated and so there's discussions and there's offers and i don't know what their offers are um i think they're making an attempt to try to resolve this before training camp they may get there they may not um to me, the unknown really is where Scoot Henderson is on. And I've said that I'm interested in hearing what he says from day one. Um, he may say nothing. He may just say, hey, I'm reporting for duty, looking forward to being a blazer and focused on getting better every day. And he, if he says that, that's fine. But he may also say, hey, this is, a, this is 
you know, something that's a, could be a distraction for me. And mm. so, you know, he, you know, there's a Scoot Henderson aspect to all of this that I think is a little bit unknown to the general public, to me. So that's one thing I want to see and hear from him on media day. Maybe it'll be nothing, but, um, um, but, you know, I would expect Dame. I, I do, I do not see Dame as somebody who doesn't report and doesn't play. So um, I would be very surprised if you didn't see Dame there and playing at his all. Um, uh, that's not who I know Dame Willard to be. Um, Giannis, uh, just he's he's had some murky kind of comments about his future in, in Milwaukee. You talked about Mark Lazary selling a stake in, in the Bucks. Just how likely is Giannis a member of the Buck Bucks after his contract uh, ends in in a couple of years? I would say right now it, it's 50-50 at best, and I don't think that's new information to the Bucks. I think the Bucks knew that already. They knew that even before they got knocked out of the playoffs last year. I mean, if you look at the Bucks roster, which is primarily in its 30s, you look at the Bucks asset base, which is depleted, um, and you look at Giannis, who's 28 years old, these are on different tracks. Like, it's not impossible that they could pull some sort of maneuver but um and i think that i i don't think any of this comes as a surprise to the bucks i think it's uncomfortable that he's being so public about it mm. i think this is the way it is and i what i do think will happen now is that the teams that want to try to trade for him will start making decisions keeping that in mind i'm not saying a team like the knicks won't make a deal or a team like the heat you know or pick another team that you think Giannis could go to Toronto. I know people think he might want to, I'm not saying that Toronto would like not sign Siakam because they want to save their money for Giannis, but certainly the decisions that those teams make will now be made with the understanding that it could affect a Giannis pursuit either by trader and free agency. And these comments that he's made this summer clarify that, but trust me, Milwaukee already knew this was on the horizon and the teams in the league already knew this was something that was very possible too. Before I let you go, just James Harden, that's been a mess for a while now with Philly. Uh, can that relationship be at all repaired, uh, which seems quite unlikely? And then what would that mean kind of for, for Joel Embiid's future in Philly? Well, I've been around long enough to be able to, I can say you never say never. Um, anybody who says that the relationship with Harden and the Sixers is complete toast and is over and will never be resuscitated. Maybe, but again, I've been around too long. And the thing about it is James Harden playing for the Sixers and playing well for the Sixers is the best outcome for James to get what he wants and for the Sixers to get what they want. Because that's true. I still think there's a pathway that that could happen. Now, his definition of playing well and then the other's definition of playing well may not be the same, but I think ultimately James is going to come to the understanding that he needs to play and play well to get what he wants. Um, and just like with the Blazers, even though I know the Sixers said that they're done trying to trade him and they're going to bring him to camp, I think you owe it to yourself to check back in because the mood of the league in the late July, early August window is different than the mood at the end of September. It's the nature of human nature. So um, 
I can see a whole bunch of different scenarios. And if anybody tells you that they know exactly how it's going to play out, they're just guessing. Well, Brian, thank you so much for doing this. I just want to give you the floor. Is there anything at ESPN that you want to plug? Um, just obviously the Hoop Collective, maybe, and, and maybe who uh, your favorite Tim is um, out of the two. Uh, but uh, I'll just say that uh, I love Canada and I want the Raptors to be relevant again because it's great to be in Toronto in the spring. I'm from Cleveland. It's not like I don't understand what a, a Great Lakes winter is, but going to playoff games in Toronto in May and June is wonderful. Um, being in Toronto in the summer is wonderful. So um, I'm a big proponent of Canada um, from poutine at Montreal Expos games, which I've had to wow. whale watching off Victoria Island or Vancouver Island or Victoria uh, to what's the name of the park. It's like a little Island park in Vancouver. Uh, um, oh, um, yeah, I know it too. And uh, 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 Stanley Park. Stanley Park, walk around the whole outside of that uh, to being on top of a dam in Revelstroke to being in in uh, in Banff to being on the shores of Lake Louise. Major Canada fan right here. There you go. So uh, that's my comment is uh, also, and I'll say it, Oh, Canada is the superior national anthem. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I typically come out during the national anthem because that's when the arena is dark and I can sort of slip into the arena. When the U.S. played Canada, I made sure I was there for the playing of O Canada, even though it wasn't being sung except by the Canadians there. Uh, I, I never miss an O Canada. And that's just the way I feel. Well, if, if you guys naturalize Joel Embiid, we'd, we'd like to naturalize you, Brian. So I think that's... I would uh, I would be glad to have a Canadian passport. I know Jordy Fernandez was telling me he's hoping to get a Canadian passport. Yeah. I want you, I want you, I want, you know, Justin Trudeau to know that if he offered me Canadian citizenship, uh, co-citizenship with the U.S., I would be glad to accept co-Canadian citizenship and, and proudly sing, Oh, Canada, I stand on guard for thee. Well, there you go. I, I'll definitely try to put something in, in the works before. Uh, yes, there. please. Just, please do that. Yeah, I, I'll do that. So you're on the on the sidelines with Jordy and, and Shay and all that. But Brian, thank you so much. I know how busy you are. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I, I think I'll be in Paris or Lille. So hopefully uh, maybe see you around that. So thanks so much, Brian. I Sounds really good. Take care.